front intake is a very versatile tool, especially in a an urban setting or a suburban setting where you're trying to spot that hydrant without having to block the street and also with a swivel on the front. It also reduces the chances of kinks. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. On this episode, we're going to have some fun. What if you had unlimited money to design and build the ultimate fire engine for your department? Yours would undoubtedly look different than anyone else's. You know, you don't have to be an engineer to be a gearhead when it comes to fire engines. In fact, judging by the YouTube videos I've seen, you don't even have to be a firefighter to be a gearhead when it comes to fire engines. But it helps to have some background on the topic if you want to talk about what makes the ultimate rig, and that's why my guest today is Ricky Riley. He's the fire apparatus manager for Prince George's County, Maryland Fire and EMS and he currently serves as the rescue engine captain at the Kentland, Maryland Volunteer Fire Department. He's also a member of the Editorial Advisory Board of Fire Apparatus and Emergency Equipment, and he writes the online column, The Rig. Ricky runs Traditions Training, LLC. More on that at the end of the show. And Ricky Riley joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. No, thank you, sir. So we're going to assume that we have an unlimited budget and try to come up with the ultimate fire engine. Now, I know that one size doesn't fit all, but this is just an exercise. That sounds like a good exercise. All right, let's start with the basics. Is there an advantage to a larger pumper body over a more compact one? Uh, I don't think there's any advantage. I think the individual response area is what kind of drives that and how many different type jobs you're trying to do. You know, if you're fortunate enough in your organization to have a strictly engine company operation and truck company operations and rescue squad operations, you're able to divvy that up amongst those units or vehicles. And that kind of helps you with the size of your vehicles and what you actually have to carry. But if you're, you know, like a a lot of departments in the country that are trying to do an an all-encompassing unit, that, uh, you know, does all the stuff they need for their community with limited staffing and you just need going to get one fire truck out, then, hey, you know, you're going to have to make a little bigger of a fire truck just to carry all the stuff that you probably need to handle all those different kind of emergencies. But, you know, I have my little fire trucks that I like, and uh, but, you know, communities have different uh, different needs and, uh, you know, obviously they, they'll need a bigger fire truck, so. So if we're talking about a bigger truck body, then I assume we can talk about a bigger onboard tank. I mean, that's all, once again, and, you know, the question's kind of open because, you know, it all depends on your response area. If you need a lot, if you're in a rural area and you need a lot of water, then, yeah, it's going to drive a bigger tank. But that doesn't mean that there aren't smaller communities that have a good hydrant system that, you know, could get a smaller tank 
know, like a 500-gallon tank or a 750 tank and still have a big body to be able to carry all the equipment they need. Obviously, with today's manufacturers, regardless of who that manufacturer is, they can certainly do a, a great job of designing a body to fit around your tank size and also kind of make it small so it's can get around. You know, obviously, you don't want the Titanic trying to get through a, a rural street or whatever and try to turn around. So right. it, it's very dependent upon that. All right, we've got the truck started. Does the onboard tank size determine whether we can use a low hose bed or a high one? I think with today's, with the, with the ability of the manufacturer and the tank companies, that you can get a large water tank and still get a low hose bed. Obviously, that comes into play, especially when you're doing like a an L-shaped tank or the tank manufacturer can pretty much make you make you anything that you want. Um, obviously, that comes with a cost, but you know you have to worry about center of gravity, how high you're making the vehicle. And so, I mean, depending on your tank size, you can have a low hose bed. Obviously, I'm always going to be a proponent of that. Why is that? Why are you a proponent of the low hose bed? Just making sure that our firefighters aren't having to climb up on the back of the fire truck and then climb up a set of steps or fold down steps to reach an attack line or to reach uh, the supply line to pull it off because firefighters in full PPE and wearing SCBA that may be riding on the fire truck, climbing up and down on the side of the fire truck, uh, regardless of how safe they make the steps and how short they make the step, is, is I think is always a dangerous thing. So the more they stay on the ground, the better I feel about them, especially when they're in in full PPE. So just, I think it reduces injuries and just for the ergonomics of the, the firefighter and the fire truck, having that low hose bed to pull an attack line or pull a supply line off, having it nice and low is a good thing for that firefighter. All of us aren't tall, you know, some of us are short. <laughs> All right. I assume you're in favor of front, rear, and side intakes. Other than money, is there a reason not to have all three? Most of the time it's money. I mean, I was certainly in it all. It, once again, a rear intake drives the height of the hose bed up, along with you know rear discharge and everything. If you can uh, get a manufacturer to build it so the rear discharge doesn't increase the hose bed height, then that's always a good thing. Side intakes are almost free, with the exception of you know having to put the valve on the side of it, or you know if you do an internal valve, an electric or an air-operated valve. Front intake is is costs money, uh, and costs a lot in pipe. To get it to the front, but it's a very versatile tool, especially in a an urban setting or a suburban setting where you're trying to spot that hydrant without having to block the street. And also with a swivel on the front, it also reduces the chances of kinks in that line. So um, I'm always about getting having the driver operator, the chauffeur, whatever you call it in your jurisdiction, the most options to get water into the fire truck without blocking the street. Or, you know, call putting himself in harm while doing it. Makes sense. So what valve do you like for the intakes? I, I really don't like air stuff, but, we, you know, we're dealing in a, in most time in the environments that I'm in a cold environment, and I just don't like airlines. A manual valve, you know, pretty much always works. Uh, you know, you know, with the exception of the, you know, everybody, regardless of the valve manufacturer, could have a failure. Obviously, you have to do good uh, preventive maintenance on those valves you know, to make sure that they always operate. But, you know, I've gone and used an electric valve, you know, for a front intake and a side intake, and then just have an override as a manual in case that thing fails. But 
you know, these manual valves that are coming out now, um, you know, like the Akron Revolution or any of those different kind of valves, you know, they're, they're good valves as long as we maintain them properly and they're all manually operated, uh, which, you know, takes out the electric, takes out the air uh, operations altogether and any chance of failure there. So that, I like those, those manual valves that we can operate. All right. Now the deck gun. I assume it's necessary. What do we have to consider here? I'm not a, you know, deck guns are like almost like a necessary evil. Uh, I see them as is that, you know, you have to have them. You never know when you're going to have that big fire and you want to be able to flow that, that large volume of water. I am in recent years very uh, opposed to taking it off the top of the vehicle and try to using it as a ground monitor just because of the difficulty of getting it off and then handing it down and people climbing down off the side of the truck with it. There's enough manufacturers out there now that create these portable deck gun monitors uh, like the little blitz fires or stingers or something like that that can flow in excess of 500 GPM and they're more maneuverable uh, once you get them off the, you know, out of the vehicle. So deck guns are necessary evil and uh, I think that they have a place. I just don't know taking them off the fire truck and putting them on the ground or something that I, that I really like anymore. I think these little portable deck gun monitors are the are the bee's knees. I think they're really the the ticket. You know, just one three inch line. You know, get over five hundred GPM or six hundred GPM and have a lot more maneuverability than a portable deck gun. If you have one of these portable monitors, do you need a deck gun also, or does that make it unnecessary? Eh, you never you never know when you're going to need that big volume. You know, if, if you run that big fire or you need that more than 500 GPM and, you know, get that two inch tip flowing, you have a good water supply. And so, I mean, I'd I'd always keep one on there. It's just another, uh, you know, weapon in our arsenal to to fight fires. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to have one on there. I just don't know if I'd go the whole route, like I said, with making it, you know, removable and having a large base that I have to keep somewhere. And then of course that requires training and practice. So. Right, and nobody's probably ever going to get time to practice doing that. <laughs> not unless it's a beautiful day. <laughs> yep. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. All right, let's move on to the cab. NFPA is pretty strict on how you can carry tools and such in the cab. What do you like to carry and how do we mount it so it's safe? I do like to carry stuff in the cab just because, of, you know, the way that, you know, this my particular jurisdiction and jurisdictions I've been involved with carry their equipment so the firefighter gets out and is able to just reach in and grab the equipment. Uh, we use a lot of the uh, Performance Advantage Corporation, the PAC brackets. Uh, they have a certification from NFPA to meet the NFPA standard to have that stuff inside the cab. Anything that's inside the cab is has to be in a bracket that can withstand the, the rollover requirements in NFPA. And then also, uh, even if you don't have that, it has something that's like 
you're trying to store a hydram or a bag, you know, it has to have a closure. It has to have a strap on it. So, and, you know, gosh forbid, if we ever have an accident, that this stuff doesn't go flying through the cab and hit our firefighters inside the cab. So as much as I, you know, I like that stuff, I want to make sure that I'm meeting the, the intent of an NFPA 1901 and making sure that I'm doing things correctly for the safety of our firefighters. So makes sense to keep the gear locked up or locked down. Absolutely. All right. Finally, you had an article a while back on the little things that matter. Can you go over some of those? Yeah, I think you know if you, most fire departments now just don't order a, a stock fire truck. I mean, there there are still departments that do that. You know, financially for financial reason reasons, um, but you know most people are ordering custom fire trucks. And as you go through the life of a fire truck, you know you find things. You know, you find little things that you want to add onto it that would have made either the operation better, the maintenance better, or just getting inside in and out of the rig better. So, I mean, that's when I call about these little things that you add. I mean, uh, you know, for one of the things that we added uh, on the front of our fire truck was just a little grab bar so you can clean the windshield, you know, rather than grabbing the windshield wiper, which, you know, depending on how heavy you are, or it doesn't even depend on how heavy you are. If you're a hundred pound person pulling on that, uh, that windshield wiper, you know, that thing will pop off, you know, so we added these little bars there. Um, you know, adding mirrors, you know, so you can see the front bumper, you know, adding grab rails wherever there, you know, NFPA requires a lot of grab rails um, due to the fact, you know, how we climb up and down on the apparatus. But, you know, if there's any place that you can put a grab rail, a, a grab ring, anything inside that fire truck to make it easier so you stay in three points of contact with the rig um, when you're climbing in and out, lower steps, you know, anything, when we talk about these little things, it's just little pieces of or ideas that we add to the fire truck to make it easier for the firefighter or for the driver operator to do their job. Um, you know, and of course I try to make everything driven towards operational, uh, as an operational need and to make us being able to put the fires out quicker and get the equipment off quicker. So, um, I, I constantly scour the internet and talk to people. And whenever I go to a manufacturer, I'm looking at what people are doing. Uh, I'm on the East coast of the country. So I go, when I go to the West Coast, you know, I make my stop at the firehouse and take a look and see what they're doing. And maybe they got something that I don't, I've never heard of or never thought about. And then I'll take that back and try to implement it into my next piece of apparatus. So never trying to stand still, uh, never let my ego get the best of me thinking I have always the best ideas because there's always a smarter firefighter out there or a smarter fleet manager out there that has got a better idea to make the fire truck better for the firefighters, the men and women that ride these fire trucks each and every day. So always be looking for those little things to make the rig better. And there we go. We've got ourselves wow. the perfect engine. <laughs> Ricky Riley, thanks for being on Code 3 today. Yes, sir. Thank you. And we've put some more information on fire engine design and traditions training LLC on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash rigs. Check it out. Here comes your pumper-related trivia question. What is the approximate friction loss of 100 feet of 5-inch hose at 1,000 gallons per minute? While you figure that out, I'll have the answer right after this. If you like Code 3, you'll love the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more discussion with our guests on any topic. Sometimes it's serious. Anywhere from 14 to 18,000 volts of electricity shot into my right hand 
and exited my right leg and right arm. Spent about four and a half months in a burn unit. Sometimes it's not so serious. And once again, I, I refer to the late Chief Brunacini. I can remember when his book first came out, Fireground Command, there were people that were ready to hang him in effigy. And, and nowadays, we refer to him as St. Bruno. But it's only available to patrons of Code 3. Find out what you've been missing. Go to Code3Podcast.com slash support. Pledge just $10 a month to support Code 3, and you'll get immediate access to all the bull sessions in our library and future interviews as we post them. Become a patron today. Here's the trivia answer. The approximate friction loss of 100 feet of 5-inch hose at 1,000 gallons per minute is 7 PSI. You probably needed a calculator to figure that out. Or your smartphone. Gosh, I'm old. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.